World War II started, enlisted in the British Army, and I finished up in Burma. Once the war had finished? I returned to India. I wanted to be a newspaper correspondent and succeeded in a manner of speaking. But as I was saying earlier, you can't really uh, look after a wife and a child with uh, an uncertain income. And I sort of drifted into the book business in India. I was writing for uh, McGraw-Hill Journals, Business Week and Engineering News Record and Chemical Engineering. They had, uh, of course, the book company. He said, do you know anything about the book business? I said, I know all about the book business. Actually, I didn't know much at all. They hired me on a freelance basis, and uh, I worked in the book business in India and in South Asia for uh, about five years, and I got to know book publishing and book marketing particularly. Mm -hmm. I more or less introduced the American College textbook into India. Yeah, because McGraw-Hill is an American company. It was unknown in India when I started, and the British textbook dominated the market. Longmans? Longmans, OUP. OUP were well established there, so were Longmans. And of course it was an imperial uh, legacy. They'd been there long before the war, and they were rather a surprise when any, any American textbooks claimed to have any application to the market, but they did very well. Why wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Why do you think that was? Because India got independence in 1947 and opened dozens of new universities, most of which were scientifically oriented. And the American scientific textbook was infinitely better than the British because it was pedagogically designed for a classroom tool yeah. whereas the British books were more scholarly, more for reference and so on. And so it was an opportunity. Mm. And um, I worked in India, say from 1950 to 55, and then I visited McGraw Hill in New York, and to my uh, surprise they offered me a job <laughs> as an international sales manager, which I became in 1956. So I moved from Bombay to New York, bypassing Britain entirely. I, I worked in New York for eight years, uh, then traveling the world for McGraw-Hill. Dealing primarily with uh, universities? College textbooks, yes. I was a college traveler and uh, also with academic booksellers. This gave me an opportunity to start writing because I'd been a newspaper correspondent, so I started writing about the book business. My first article in Publishers Weekly was 1956, I think. Funny, I was born in 1956. You were, that yeah. was a good year. And then I took out American citizenship, but McGraw had other ideas. They sent me here hmm. to run their European and Middle East business. And I ran their business in Europe and the Middle East and Africa for the next 12 years, it was until 1974. And then we parted company. So my introduction to British publishing actually began in 1963. I mean, by that time I was 43 years old, and uh, the whole thing was a revelation to me. I was coming back to my own country, but I'd been abroad for 25 years. Also, I was taken to be an American, which was an interesting experience. There was a good deal of anti-Americanism yeah. in the country, <coughs> and the 
publishing business here was very uptight about any American intruders. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, then, you know, yeah, 25 to, years down the road, they're all owned by them. to prove my head. But, of course, the Americans are quite aggressive, including McGraw-Hill. We tried to buy Penguin in 67, and uh, that was when the agglomeration of publishing was starting, the big corporations were beginning, everybody was buying everybody and selling as well. Yeah. So when I came here in 63, the, the book business in this country was dominated by uh, really four publishers, uh, Longman, uh, Macmillan, OUP, and Collins. Collins were mainly trade publishers, Longman were mainly educational, Macmillan was mainly trade, OUP was everything, and they were all privately, all, well, yeah, kind of dynasties, weren't they? They were dynasties. Family dynasties. Macmillan was run by Harold Macmillan in the background. Longman was run by Mark Longman. And I got to know them all because I got onto the Council of the Publishers Association and gradually got into the, the inner circle of British publishing. It took a few years. Well, you had to tell them you were a Scot first. I didn't tell them. I let them find out. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And gradually it began to work. And of course the whole, it was just the moment when uh, publishing was beginning to expand and to become, become modern. McGraw and I parted company in 1974. You know, I, there comes a time in a corporation when you no longer belong. And I did work for them for 24 years, so I guess that was uh, a of a quite good relationship. Good run, yeah. And then I was offered the chairmanship and chief executorship of Butterworth, which uh, was an unbelievable experience. I'll show you my second book of Butterworth. You've got the official history, but I couldn't write the full story then because a key participant was still alive and he would have sued for libel if I had written. But after he died, I wrote it. Is that Bond? No. Um, uh, Bond died in 42. Maxwell then. No, Maxwell never bought Butterworth. He tried in 1967. But Butterworth was bought in 67 by what was then IPC, which became Reed International. Before I joined them in 74, they'd been owned by Reed International for seven years. But Reed International didn't know what to do with it. It was this venerable legal publisher, Nigel, an unbelievable monopoly. The leading legal publisher in the country, they were part of the establishment all of the top legal people regarded Butterworth as an institution. Stanley Bond, who founded the company, well, his father gave it to him in 1899. And he was a single-minded genius who established these great multi-volume works on which the company was still living. Bond had died in 42, and the company had been messed around by a succession of mediocre managers. And in 1967, when... Maxwell tried to buy it, and Reed bought Butterworth to keep Maxwell out. Mm. So you might say they bought it in an absent-minded moment and didn't know what the hell to do with it, because they were um, magazine publishers. You know, all the popular, IPC they used to be called, International Publishing Corporation. Butterworth was a, a gold mine waiting to be unlocked. And when I joined the company, it was turning over about... 10 million pounds and was losing money and when I left it was turning over 125 million of which 25 million was net profit. That's pretty good. How do you do that? 
it wasn't difficult. You simply had to modernize it. Which meant what? We went into loose leaf, we went into online. I took the Lexus license in 1979. And that's a curious piece of history too because the Mead Corporation in Dayton, Ohio, Mead were a forestry corporation, they wanted rid of Lexus and we could have bought it uh, in the 1980s for about $400 million, but we were not really interested. Then we got into bed with Elsevier after I left in the 90s. Elsevier were very interested in Lexus because they understood it, so they bought Lexus for one and a half billion dollars ten years later. That's Lexus Nexus. And it's not right? Lexus Nexus. Yeah. And now Butterworth is called Lexus Nexus. Okay. The name Butterworth is gone. So tell me, what did you do to multiply their turnover by more than ten times? The old product, you increased the prices. Because you had a monopoly. Not a monopoly, yeah. Right. Then you introduced new product, which consisted of Practitioner books for lawyers and multi-volume works. You see, Butterworth had this formula. They got the very top people to write. They didn't pay royalties, they paid fees. One fee, and uh, the people were pleased to be invited to write, you know. Because it added to their prestige. Yes, yes. The other way was to uh, improve relations with the book trade. Butterworth was hated by the booksellers. Again, because they had a monopoly and they were arrogant? Because they weren't interested in the booksellers. They sold everything direct. Mm-hmm. And they gave the booksellers 10% discount. Well, of course, I, I wanted both worlds, so I cultivated the booksellers and raised the discount and sold a lot more books. The booksellers began to love one of us because it was easy to sell, you see. The, the primary audience, obviously, would be lawyers and teachers? Ambassadors. Law schools, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair. The other way I, I, I should have said first in answer to your question about how it was expanded, what I was able to contribute was international. They had ancient companies in uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Canada. Canada was founded in 1914 and these were very sleepy companies just distributing the product of the mother company. Okay. So I got them all into the local publishing business. They became local publishers. Who basically did the same thing that the mother corporation was doing within their particular market. Exactly. They replicated the role and became the premier legal publishers. And then we opened up in the United States where Butterworth had nothing. Also, we went into scientific publishing as well as legal. So what was the product? Precedents? Legal cases, that kind yes, of material? and also uh, practitioner manuals and uh, college textbooks in legal subjects. So you, you, you got a hold of the experts in all of these different new markets, mm-hmm. uh, invited them to, to write what? Their, not interpretation of the law. Sometimes, yes. Uh, a textbook about the law would be part of the, part of the product, but principally it was the codification of the law. The great work of Butterworth was Halsbury's Laws of England, 60 volumes, each one costing £100 or something like that, and on a subscription basis. And that was the codification of the law. Could you describe exactly what you mean by codification? Not just publishing the letter of the law as passed in Parliament, but embodying it in a text, 
which uh, became a sort of Bible for the lawyers, you see. In other words, here's how you can interpret this. That's right. And, and if you're arguing this way, yeah. here's one way, and if you're arguing another way, then here's another way to look at it. But, but we also published the large self, you see. I mean, it was public domain stuff. You know? No copyright. Just no anyone could do that. Yes, you published the law, and you only published about about the law. You but, but you offered value added that was regarded as what? Well, the, these multi-volume works became the, really the embodiment the statement of the law. So we published Hallsbury's was the laws of England, we published the laws of Scotland, the laws of Ireland, the laws of South Africa, the laws of New Zealand, the laws of Canada. The government they would make them available but they wouldn't they wouldn't publish them? What was called Her Majesty's Stationery Office had it all in text, but uh, they didn't market it. So I mean it's there come and get it, yeah. you pay them, and what? Were their prices I mean the prices were probably much better than yours. But you had a lot of extra... Oh, yes, we added the gloss. They said it couldn't be done when Stanley Bond started, but it became the, uh, the central pillar of legal publishing in the end, these multi-volume works. Yeah. Also, Encyclopedia of Laws and Precedents, there were various multi-volume works, which were the real secret of the company's profitability. As I say, it was all there. I inherited it. I didn't. I, yeah, all you did was multiply the turnover by 10. I was brought in as a manager, that's all. Well, this is all very boring, I think, for you. No, 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 I think this gives us a, a I mean, a, a, what, we're, what we're doing with this, this program is we're looking at the histories of all sorts of different publishers. Yeah. This is where we might change gears, because once we have a basic idea of the company, we want to look at the product that that company produced, yeah. and identify which products are most collectible or interesting to the to the bibliophile, to the, to the bookseller, to the book collector. And Butterworth's what? Doesn't have any of that? Or does it? You mean books that they published? Books that they published that might be of interest to collectors today. Uh, I mean, uh, aside from lawyers. But maybe lawyers are great collectors. <laughs> I don't think lawyers are book collectors, no, they, they buy books to use them. And I don't think that, if you're talking about the Butterworth backlist, it must have a certain antiquarian value, but after all, it's too specialized. It's not going to be a major contributor to the antiquarian market. Okay, so I'm going to change gears then, and I'm going to ask you, first of all, what characteristics do the best publishers possess? You mean book publishers in Britain or yeah. in the world? Or uh, other Britain and the world. I think every successful publisher that I've ever known has one good core product which carries the company. Just imagine Oxford University Press without its dictionaries. I mean, that's, that's where the money is. Imagine Longman without its books to teach English. And that core product is generally created by one individual who in the old days was the owner of the company. And these successful companies, the people who started them and ran them, they were editorial geniuses. They weren't good at marketing and they weren't often good at finance. So 
if you can add to that core product that vision yeah, that vision and that identification of need <laughs> Alan Lane and paperbacks and so on then what the company needs after that in addition to that is a strong marketing operation and that's where many publishers are weak and this reflects the attitudes of these editorial geniuses who basically feel that once they've made the product it's done because it's great and people and, will and realize people, that. The world will come, you know. Yeah. It isn't so. You've got to go out and sell. And I think uh, in, in British publishing, marketing was the great weakness. It was complacent, somewhat the in, inheritance of the imperial uh, economy. The, they didn't sell to the market. They bestowed on the market. Yeah. But the thing is, the, the great ones did that. Alan Lane was yeah. a fantastic marketer. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Cape was a great salesman, so uh, I suppose if you can get that all in one person, that's rare, but that's that's one identification. Yeah. Or if you can get two partners that work together that but will take care of the both sides. The is more likely, and as you said, Jonathan Cape was a great salesman. That didn't mean he could build a good sales organization. Being a personal salesman is one thing. Alan yeah. Lane was too, but. Yeah. The, the marketing in the end in publishing is a very detailed, almost dull business. Selling books, uh, as you know, is not like selling other product because each title has to be sold separately. And this means an enormous amount of detailed work with which the, the owner of the company may not be ready to do it, you see. Mm -hmm. He needs a very strong, who can be a partner or can be an employee. And of course the other thing is, uh, is the finance. Uh, the big corporations, uh, American and British and, and European, did bring financial skills to publishing, which it was sadly, sadly lacking. Uh, that's one of the things that you think uh, was responsible for the Americans coming in and, and sort of taking over then? It wasn't until the 1960s when the Americans began to coagulate themselves into not multinationals but into a conglomerate when the media companies started to move into book publishing like CBS and Xerox mm -hmm. so, well they, they've been greatly uh, criticized for you know damaging the soul of publishing and only being interested in money and so on but actually they brought financial skills and practices to publishing which made publishing much more profitable than it ever was under the personal ownership of the, of the founders. Now that's not necessarily a good thing from the perspective of a book lover, uh, no, but no. from the perspective of a, a shareholder it's obviously But you asked thing. me what made a good publishing company, yeah. and I'm adding that as a factor. When you say good, I assume you mean profitable. <laughs> No, you don't. not necessarily. Oh, I see. But on the other hand, yeah, I mean, a, cer a certain success and longevity is, is obviously a part of the mix. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned these two aspects because I was just in talking with Toby Faber. Yeah. And we talked about the fact that his grandfather hired uh, T.S. Eliot, who wasn't just a bank clerk. He was very accomplished. He was an accomplished yeah. banker. Yeah. And that unity of creativity and financial smarts yeah. 
That would make a good case study, I think, yes. yes. I guess the other thing that I'm, I'm interested in learning from you is profitability obviously is central, but also bringing great work to the attention of, of a greater audience is laudable and, and putting it together in a beautiful, uh, appropriate package is also just as important. Well, you can't publish great works of both literary and physical quality without money and the company has to bring the money to that in order to do it. They have to have the will also. I mean, take McGraw-Hill. In many ways they were, they were not trade publishers, they were never successful at trade publishing. No. Reference textbooks and so on. But they did great things with the money they made. They published the Encyclopedia of World Art, 15 mm -hmm. volumes, which no publisher could have attempted without having financial resources, which he made on the other things. You make the money on the grubby things. Now, I'll give you the best case study you can possibly make is John Murray. Now, John Murray, I, I knew Jock very well. He was here quite a few times. He was the seventh... They were famous for their literary quality. Mm. They are the home of Byron. Yeah. They would go for literary quality, even if it didn't promise to sell well. Now, how did they do that? They had a school list. John, John Murray, John Murray's core, or the core part of it, was their school list. That sort of sounds a bit mundane, but it made the money, and everyone sort of reveres them for being Byron's That's right, publisher. but they couldn't have done it without the school list. Right. Which was quietly, I mean, school publishing, once you've got a good list, sells every year, the schools will always be there, mm. and it's highly profitable, low discount, and sells in bulk, you know. Mm. And John Murray could not have survived without their school list in, in the 20th century. They made money in order to spend it. And do the do the wonderful things that they've done. Yes. Wonderful in the sense of, again, packaging up great work so yeah. that it would stand the test of time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It sounds to me like he is one of the publishers you admire the most. Yes. Who else? My background is um, scientific, educational, reference, and so on. Mm. Uh, trade publishers. Well, any publisher. I mean, if there's someone that stands out that I admired when I was working. I mean, yeah, just uh, uh, if there's a particular hero that you might uh, have had. Well, uh, certainly Jock Murray would, would, be, would be top of the list. And that was because they did something really valuable with their profit. Yes, and Jock Murray was an editorial genius. He couldn't sell anything, but boy, could he publish, you know. Mm. Alan Lane, of course, I also knew uh, not well because... He died in 67, I came here in 63, but we tried to buy his company, and he was not a literary man. You know. No, no, no. He didn't read uh, his own books. He never read a book, really. Uh, he just had a, a sense of what the ordinary reader might enjoy. Yes, yes. I'll tell you what, let's uh, shift camp into my cabin. Sure. And I'll show you some of the books there. Will you like a little more wine? Take it with you. If there is any yeah, I'll, I'll squeeze that, the rest of that out into here. It'll be great. Okay. Thank you. 5,000 books in my house. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> and I'm in, in process of doing something that might intrigue you. Yeah. 
I don't have much longer to live. Yeah. And uh, when I die, I don't want my library to be just, you know, disposed of. I know exactly what you so mean. So I'm putting an ex libris in every book, and I'm designating the person to whom I want it to go. And I've already spoken to friends. Uh, I, my military history collection will go to a military historian. I've given my art books to a, to a school, school in the United States as it happens. Uh -huh. I'm giving my, uh, uh, my Scottish collection to uh, somebody from Scotland who loves books about this. And so all of the books will... Isn't that great? Go to somebody who's going to love them. Yes. Watch your feet there. Yeah. Come with me. Uh, it's interesting because isn't that such a that's such a key consideration with us bibliophiles is you know, some people don't mind throwing them back into the sea into the ocean so other people can find them but I like the uh, that's a, that's a lovely idea I'm, I'm targeting my entire library my I, I'll just show you my library on publishing here and I've got a young man who is um, he was president of the Society of Young Publishers okay and I'm giving the whole library to him. Isn't that great? And he's accepted and he wants to make it available to young publishers. What's his name? Jason Mitchell. I'll see how many of these I've got, okay? <laughs> oh, I'm sure a lot of them you know, I sent out to be reviewed and never got them back for my journal. Uh -huh. Have you seen my journal? No, I haven't. But I love you. We're in a, we're in a kind of a log cabin here. so yeah, this, uh, that's uh, 20 years of Lagos there. Oh, lovely. Oh, I have seen this you magazine. Have seen yes, I have. Yes. yes. Um, and of course, many, many books are reviewed here, you see. Books about but books that are reviewed. When you go to book review, you lose it because the reviewer keeps it. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. And I do have a few here. That's why I review books, to get them. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Now, you the publishers, you see, whom do I admire? Mm -hmm. I quite admired Max Reinhardt. Why did you admire him? Because he had style and an attachment to quality. He was just not a very good, uh, very good businessman. Oh, yes, that's, that's by own, him. That's yeah. his own book, you know. These are all in, I should mention, in, in excellent, <laughs> fine, fine condition here. Yes, I this is... Horace Liverite. It's American, Horace yeah. Liverite. Publishers are a witness for writing about themselves, too. Yeah, you can't always trust them, can you? That's Jock Murray's commonplace book. Yes. Yeah. I think probably I quite admired Stanley Unwin. And, uh, of course, I also knew quite a few Americans. Kurt Enoch I quite admired. He built the new American library. The big paperback. He was a German refugee arrived penniless in New York in 1940 and built a great um, publishing empire. What are some of your uh, favorite books? About publishing? Uh, just in general. Oh, books, in general. books that you love. <laughs> you know, if, if the house was burning down, which books would you rush in to save? Uh, well... <clears throat> I'd probably go for the entire works of Robert Louis Stevenson first, <laughs> okay. which, uh, of which I've got quite a few editions. There's a strong Scottish influence, um, yeah. and um, I was brought up on Walter Scott, of course, 
and that's going going back uh, quite a time. But many of the books which I love are sort of individual titles, all non-fiction. My taste in fiction died about 1950. But it tends to do that, doesn't it? It goes in waves. I, I found that I get very excited about, for example, the Russians. Spent about ten years reading them, and now I'm sort of drifting. I've drifted away from that, and into something else. Of course, you can't do anything. I we all become specialists. So my reading has been mainly biography, autobiography, politics, and history. Right. Uh, again, let's shift gears. Then we we talked about publishers that you admire. What about books uh, as object? That's not so important to you. It's more as content. Oh yes, content. I have some antiquarian books in the house, but I'm not really a collector. Then let's shift again to what you're doing with Logos. I sold it after 20 years to the Dutch publisher Brill. They didn't get started very quickly, but they just produced the volume for last year. Could you tell me what Logos is? It's an idea I had, which I turned into a journal. What it is basically, Nigel, is an attempt to demonstrate that all of the book professions are one. Starting with the author, the editor, production, publishing, bookselling, librarianship, the reader. They are all part of, of a unified process, institution. Yeah. Really. And secondly, that all of the published industries in the world have common interests. What it's about is the connection between the book professions. Okay, so it's a, let's just, for argument's sake, say it's a way for everyone in the industry to have a look at best practices in other parts of the industry? Exactly. Yeah. It's for librarians to learn from booksellers and publishers to learn from authors and it's all written by professionals. It's not an academic journal. It's a professional forum. Yeah. I mean, nobody gets paid. And so you basically pulled together all sorts of articles on the institution of bookmaking. It's about practice. It's not an academic journal. There's very little by academic. It's yeah. mainly by practicing publishers, practicing booksellers, practicing designers, practicing indexers. And here's what we do. That's right. And here's and how we do it. And the rest, you see. Right. Do you have thoughts on uh, on where this institution is headed? Yes, I do. Running through this whole 20-year <coughs> enterprise, that's the literature of the book, by the way, another project, is the analysis of the conflict between the electronic and the print. And the, the broad conclusion I have reached is that the Electronic publishing, which has been so much disliked by the traditionalists, has actually become a unifying factor. Mm. It, has, it has forced the different components of the book, starting with the author and finishing with the reader, to see that they are all one. So I see it as a positive, positive influence. And of course it's transforming publishing as we speak. But I don't regard it as the demolition of, of publishing. I think it's they're in, they're in partnership. Hmm. So that was another project. I asked um, various authorities to choose the best books 
about books. Oh, great. <laughs> there, these are the headings. I got the actual books free from the publishers, okay. and they were exhibited at Frankfurt and London and uh, various schools, and they're now lodged in Oxford there as a library of the literature of the book. And that's been sold. It's been published commercially quite widely. So again, it's a bibliography put it's together by people who are actually uh, exactly. part the of the business. It's a bibliography put together by experts. The ones who would know, you know, what's, what's real and what's bullshit. They're all subject experts, you see. Right. They are specialists. They're not, they're not like me, uh, a broad generalist. Just in closing down, why do you love the book business? I love the book business because it's an extension of my life. I was educated in the time when books were absolutely central. It goes back to my school days when a book was something to be revered. And that was planted in me. But uh, the expression of the love of books in my life didn't begin until after the war because I was otherwise engaged. But then I, be, I fell in love with the, with the printed word, both as a reader and a, some kind of author too. Mm -hmm. That's my other book, by the way, which you may not have seen. No. It's a book of essays about the book business. Mm. It's well, about ideas. Right. And, and communicating them, obviously. Less. Less. I, the word communication is uh, a mechanical word. I'm interested in the journey, not the vehicle. Put it, put it that way. What do you mean? Communication is nothing, you know. It's the telephone and, uh, and the internet. And uh, What are you proudest of? In the book, in the book sense, yeah, or I'm proudest of what I've written. I've written four or five books, and they're all different. I think probably my war memoir is the thing I'm proudest of. Hmm. What's that called? It's called "The Trees Are All Young on Garrison Hill." Garrison Hill was the battlefield of Kohima, where in 1944. I didn't write it until five years ago. It's well written. <laughs> you know, I'm You're happy with it. Exactly, obviously. yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes I, I'm happy with that. It's, it's an, an instant rare book. I only printed a thousand and I signed every one of them. Okay. It's out of print now. I'm, hmm. I'm finishing up giving you my autobiography, which is not really what you want to know, is it? Well, uh, you know, it's, I'm listening. I'm listening. And I think that's probably how this is, this is how I'm going to craft it. You're an important member of the book publishing fraternity. I was, past nine. And so uh, I'm thinking that that's certainly going to be of interest to a lot of people who love books and who love publishing, so... I don't know. Well, even if it isn't, I've had a, <laughs> I've had a fantastic time here with you, so yeah. that's the important thing. <laughs> Let me thank you for your uh, time and uh, thoughts and ideas. I uh, thank you uh, for coming here. I, as I say, I don't come into town now, but... Uh, Gordon Graham...
was the, the with McGraw-Hill? First of all, I was representative in India, an international sales manager in New York. Then I was managing director of their business here. In England? And then I was chairman and chief executive of Butterworth. Until 1990. Retired at the age of 70. Well, thanks so much for your time. Great pleasure, Arthur.